Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Patreons Daniel Smith and Daya Darko for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death dying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. The phrase on the horizon can mean a lot of things. A lot of people use it to talk about what the future holds, what could be coming, what your life has on the horizon. Could be a new home, or a big move, or kids. Could mean a lot of things, excited or anxious as they may make you. Could also mean, literally, what you can see on the literal physical horizon. I often find myself staring off to the edge of the world on long drives, or at the beach here on the west coast. There's something soothing about how far you can see off into the distance before the world curves out of view in front of you. I normally find thresholds like that unnerving, but not the horizon. The horizon reminds me there is more to the world beyond my field of view. That there's others out there, just like me, staring off into the horizon. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story of horizons and the things that stalk there. In On the Horizon, massive creatures appear and derail a life. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. They appeared seven days before Susan's 34th birthday, on the horizon, far off in the distance. They came into view slowly, as a ship does seen from shore on its voyage toward land, lumbering and deliberate in their movements. These monstrous things, it soon would be discovered, were on everybody's horizon. Everyone's equally regardless of height or width or placement or purpose. Regardless of an individual's position on Earth, they were there, on the horizon. And then they stopped, these massive creatures. Stopped just as they came completely into view. There, they stood for three days, peering down, watching the panicked humans scurry as ants would from a stray step. There were seven in all, 
Everyone saw seven. Everyone saw seven. Seven silent wardens, standing on four legs, with oversized heads to support oversized eyes. They swayed in their spots, eyes scanning over what they saw beneath them, which, if they were everywhere to everybody, then they saw everything at once. When their three days of silent vigil ended, they began moving again, from left to right, east to north to west to south, they circled their given patch of planet. The world's governments didn't take to these intruders, and within days of their renewed movement, sent fighter planes to destroy them. The pilots, however, reported never getting any closer to the beasts, and the countries who launched their missiles anyway likewise reported those getting no closer to their targets, falling well short. Some even hit their own citizens inadvertently. When rational thinkers stood before worried crowds and offered no explanation for these visitors, those they called irrational filled the void, starting several competing cults to take advantage. Two weeks into Susan's 34th year, Susan, terrified of the implications of these cosmic strangers, joined one of the first sects to emerge. The welcomers of the Watchers is what they called themselves. The word Watchers, of course, referred to the giants looming over every moment. It was also easy enough to remember that it stuck in common parlance and became shorthand for the beings, those existential threats to continued life on Earth. The Welcomers, as they became known, were already hundreds strong when Susan joined, and within a month of the Watchers appearing, would top a thousand. They had no central location, no compound, required no casting off of earthly possessions, asked for no membership fees, had no in-person meetings. It was a cult in name only, and in all practicality, was only a band of loosely affiliated online accounts across several social media platforms held together by a couple of hashtags. It was a true 21st century church, whose fixation on seven beings everyone could see but no one could agree upon boiled down to 280 characters, minus 100 or so characters of hashtags, of course. Over the next several months, Susan's life didn't change all that much. She still went to work at the same job, selling insurance, hung out with the same friends, more or less, and saw her parents on the weekends, and her teenage brother, too. She did develop a slight morning ritual, though, one that had been adopted by a small subset of the welcomers after Susan had posted about it. She couldn't really pin down what compelled her to start, but one morning, after her breakfast, she took the stairs to the roof of her building. There, she looked north and looked at that hulking form flailing across the horizon. She shuddered at the sight of it. They always made her uncomfortable. But she forced herself to make eye contact with the thing, and once she did, she asked it for answers. She didn't know why she wanted answers. Or even the questions she wanted answers to. But she asked the northernmost watcher for answers to unasked questions, and then she scanned east and looked the next one in the eyes 
and asked it for answers and repeated until she was again looking north. Then she went back inside and finished her coffee. The things dominated the news, of course, and had since the moment they showed up on the horizon. As she watched the morning's reports and scrolled through her news feeds, her mind drifted and she recalled the morning the watchers lumbered into view. The response was measured at first, but as it became clear that not everyone saw the same thing, or rather that everyone did see the same thing, but differently, that the response to the appearance of the watchers ramped up, turned sour, turned downright apocalyptic. It only took those first few hours to ramp the rhetoric sky high, which it remained until the missiles flew and missed, and in the wake of the explosions, cults like the welcomers sprung up. Now, four weeks after their appearance, Susan thought of this sequence of events often. What if it had gone differently? What if the response had been more measured, scientific, peaceful? It went this way for years, but then Susan lost interest. She stopped going on the roof to ask for answers, stopped participating in the cults, stopped paying much attention to the watchers at all. They became the normal backdrop of her life, like the tree line behind her building, or her drive to work. And the world's attention seemed to mirror Susan's. The apocalyptic cults lost members and dissolved. Others rose to take their places, and then they stopped forming entirely, or formed for different reasons. When young children learned to speak, they said nothing of the giant beings on the horizon, and when asked directly, none could see the watchers. Susan met and married her husband, and then they had two children of their own. And one morning, some ten years after the watchers arrived on every individual's personal skyline, Susan thought she noticed something different about hers. She was loading her bag into the trunk of her car, heading off to work, when she glanced up at them. It was the first time in months she really gave them a good look, like looking up at a mountain you live in the shadow of but hardly notice except on a whim. She wasn't sure at first. She had to take a long pause to try to remember how the watchers looked when they first arrived. She tried to remember where on the horizon they had positioned themselves, and she just couldn't remember. Were their feet past the skyline? Or were their feet on her side of the horizon, visible to all? Looking at each watcher raise and lower their hooved feet, she decided their feet hadn't been visible before, at least before then. They had creeped closer to her, to be sure. She had never seen their hooves before. She felt the blood rush to her face, setting her cheeks on fire. Her heart tightened, and her stomach collapsed like a star turning into a black hole. She felt like the rest of her body might follow, each subsequent atom pursuing the last, until she was no more, just a small point the size of a pinhead, formed of dread. She rushed back into the house to her husband, Daniel, finishing the last of his cup of coffee, and her mother, Henrietta, who was there to watch the children as she normally did on Tuesdays. The kitchen was filled with Henrietta's laughter, 
when Susan sucked the air out of the room. I need you two to tell me I'm not imagining something, okay? Susan said. You don't look so good, honey, Daniel said. Are you feeling all right? Susan shook her head. What's wrong? Henrietta asked. Are you sick? No. Come outside, Susan said, and then rushed back out to the driveway. Henrietta and then Daniel emerged through the garage on Susan's heels. The suburb that Susan had made her home with Daniel was exceptionally quiet that morning. No bird songs or squirrel chirps in the nearby wooded areas. Their neighbors weren't driving by on their way to work. The neighborhood was somehow suspended, locked in a diorama. The only movement, for as far as Susan could see, were those massive watchers circling slowly, and then her mother and husband arriving at her side. Do you see that? Susan asked them. Daniel and Henrietta followed her gaze to the horizon. Huh, Daniel said. They're gone, Henrietta said. And Susan vomited onto the concrete in front of her. The news was once again dominated by the Watchers. This time, their sudden disappearance from the world's vision. The turn of events was heralded as a return to normal life. After a decade of the constant specter of the Watchers, now the horizon was clear, pure, and beautiful. Everyone, everywhere, breathed a little easier. And no one believed Susan. No one believed her that they were still there and they were closing in. Her neighbors didn't believe her, her co-workers, and the one that hurt the most, Daniel, her husband, didn't believe her. At first, he was angry. How could she deny such unambiguous good news? And then he was sad. How could she deny such unambiguous good news? Then, finally, he was worried. How could she deny such unambiguous good news? He asked her to see somebody, to help with the transition. Perhaps she just couldn't see because her head had become so attached. Could that happen, he wondered. And each moment that went by, each moment she was alone, meant the watchers were closing in. She composed a message to those that were still subscribed to the welcomers of the Watchers mailing list with the subject line, Urgent, Watchers Still Watching. It read, Can someone confirm that I am not the only person left on Earth that sees the Watchers? If I am the only person left, please listen. They are closing in. It went unanswered for three weeks. When Susan finally did receive a response to her email, it was short and cryptic. The subject line read, Important, H-O-R-I-Z-O-N, not clear. And in the body were three words, Agree slash not agree. 
Susan's heart constricted. In the three weeks since the Watcher's departure and sudden journey inward toward Susan, she had never felt more alone. She found herself wandering outside often and staring off toward the Watchers. Their journey inward was slow, deliberate, and menacing. Susan turned panicked and erratic, though they hadn't actually made that much ground toward their prey. Their wide circles, around and around and around Susan, meant their course to their ultimate destination could take months, or maybe even years. Susan was pretty sure she couldn't handle years of this. Her temper was on a hair's trigger. She hardly spoke to her husband, and he kept their children busy and away from her. This email soothed some of that pain. She replied, agree, and almost instantly she received a reply back. Location? Question mark. She replied, Indianapolis. Yours? And she received a reply, not important, how close? Miles, but closer every day. Again, where are you? She hit send on this latest reply and waited, but no response came. If Susan were ever to relax about her unique situation, this short string of emails was not the cure-all for her anxiety. It was late. Her husband and children were already asleep. The knowledge that someone, somewhere, was also still seeing the watchers made her feel less alone, though now that she thought about it, the mystery messenger didn't exactly confirm that they were still seeing those beasts, much less that they were also closing in around them. Susan moved her laptop from her lap to the coffee table in front of the couch she was sitting on. It felt so heavy, the laptop, like it contained the weight of all of this. It reminded her of those days all those years ago, when the Watchers had just arrived, before she had children, before she met Daniel. The days when she would spend hours scrolling through social media feeds, talking to her fellow welcomers of the Watchers, speculating about their purpose. It all seemed like such a short time ago, and her laptop had gotten heavy from the memories. She walked through the quiet, dark house to the kitchen. Her drink needed a refill. She'd been drinking a lot, enough to worry Daniel, but she didn't really want to stop. The empty hole beneath her seemed less intimidating with a few whiskeys inside of her belly. And her belly... Her belly felt warm when she drank, which was preferable to cold and empty otherwise. When she had refilled her drink, she walked back to the living room and instead of returning to the couch, stopped for a minute to stare at the cursed laptop open on the coffee table. The light from it danced across the screen, rippling through the darkness around her. She shivered, took a sip of whiskey to calm her nerves, and walked through the living room past the laptop and walked out of the front door of her house. The concrete driveway was cold against her feet. Susan was bundled otherwise. Sweatpants and a hoodie protected the rest of her body from the late autumn cold. But she had forgotten her slippers inside. 
She danced a little bit, removing each foot in turn to give it relief from the cold. But within a half a minute, she had given that up and planted her feet directly on the concrete. The soles on each of them went from cold to burning to numb, and she enjoyed the gradual shifting sensations. Looking up, toward the horizon, there they were, the seven watchers, circling. Their eyes, reflecting the full moon's light, fixed on her, and she suddenly felt like she was back on the elementary school playground, surrounded by that group of kids that hated her for no reason. She felt the same isolation, the same despair, the same helplessness. She drank the rest of her whiskey down and threw the glass into the yard. Then she sat on the driveway. She watched the watchers a little longer, but their constant circling made her dizzy. And soon she had laid on the concrete and fell asleep. Susan woke up only hours later to freezing rain hitting her forehead. She couldn't feel her fingers now and when she sat up, the hangover was already taking hold. It must have been the early morning hours, though, because it was still dark, and the sun had yet to even begin hinting at sunrise in the east. She stumbled as she got to her feet, and when she looked up to see those constant monsters circling, she held up her middle finger to them, as if they could understand what that meant. It made her feel a little better, though. A little better. Inside, her laptop still sat on the coffee table, just where she left it, but now she could see she had a new email waiting for her. Rushing back to the couch, indifferent to her current dampness in the face of a new email from that mystery messenger, she read the subject line, H-O-R-I-Z-O-N, dash, escape now. Her stomach turned when she opened the email. What greeted her was two sentences. Not much time left then. Head to the horizon. Don't look back. She replied, why? Explain. But would never get a response to her questions. The next few days, Susan called out of work and didn't talk to Daniel or her children at all. She kept turning those two sentences over in her head. Not much time left, then. Head to the horizon. Don't look back. It gnawed at her mind. Chewed on every other thought she tried to have. Intruded and dominated her brain. Not much time left, then. Head to the horizon. Don't look back. She sent several follow-up emails, of course, asking for clarifications, but it was futile. This is all she would ever get from her mystery messenger, just some instructions that, while incredibly specific, were also tragically vague. How could she follow such directions? Head to the horizon, don't look back. But what horizon? In which direction? For three days she sat in the house trying to decide what it meant, what that sentence meant. She didn't eat, and hardly slept. On the third day, Daniel called Henrietta for help, 
but not even her mother could elicit a response from Susan. She had turned inward completely and devoted all of her energy to this seven-word sentence. Head to the horizon. Don't look back. In the time it took for Daniel and Henrietta to put the kids to bed, Susan slipped out of the house, got into the car, and was halfway across the city before they knew she was gone. This activity, traveling at high speed and observing the watchers, was always the most unnerving to Susan. It wasn't possible to close the distance with the watchers. They were always on the horizon, seven of them always on the horizon. They slipped along the ground around Susan, like macabre holograms mocking her for traveling toward them. She drove for hours, out of the city, down long country highways. When the sun came up, she stopped on the side of the road for a few hours rest and then drove again, through four states, stopping only when she needed to, to rest. At the foot of the Rockies, Susan pulled off the road. Here, she hoped that the mountains would shield her from half of the monstrous watchers, but they had so far closed in around her that they climbed the mountains and towered over her, taller than ever. She got out of her car, the only traveler on this slim mountain road. She was exhausted from the lack of sleep, from the hours in the car, from the constant threat only she could see. Then she did something she hadn't since those early years. She looked up at her tormentors and asked for answers. Like old times, she didn't know the questions, but she begged anyways. Susan fell to her knees, clasped her hands, and looked up at each of those intruders in turn, tears in her eyes, begging them to tell her anything. Please, anything. But, as they had for a decade, they remained silent and continued their circle, closing in on Susan forever. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, On the Horizon, was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Making Mountains Out of Molehills. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows. They're all fantastic. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.